0: I do invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and ask that you turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And today we begin Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the first six verses. We're going to focus primarily on the first five and just briefly mention uh, verse 6 this morning. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. But every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that the one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, where he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Let's once again pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this time now to be together in your word. We have sung uh, of the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus, and now, Father, we have read a passage that speaks of the same. And Lord, we do pray by the Spirit that you would exalt the Son uh, in our hearing, that you would tether our hearts more firmly to him. Our Father, we pray for any who may be straying, that you would bind their hearts once again to the person and work of Jesus. And Lord, for those who, do- who so desperately need uh, to have their eyes opened, Lord, open them to the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. I want to lay out a series of uh, scenarios to you in regard to the things that you possess or that you have that matter most to you. If I told you you needed to get out of your house in a week and whatever you could carry with you or pack together in that week, what what would you take with you? Now you change the scenario. Now you have a day. You have 24 hours, as we have seen in the news recently now. You have 24 hours to to get out. And now you think to yourself, all right, now what will I take with me now? And now imagine that you awaken in the middle of the night and the alarm is sounding, your fire uh, alarms are going. And now you have only a minute or two. And are they different? What you would take if you had a week, what you would take if you had a day, and what you would take if you only had a few moments. And perhaps if you only had a few moments, it might be but one thing, one thing that you would take, one thing that is of major value. See, in asking and answering these questions, we're dealing with with the issue of priorities, and while many things matter and many things are important there are only a few things that matter the most and really only ultimately one and so we asked the question how do we determine how do we determine what are the main things what are the major things what are the most important things Well, sometimes the Bible does it very closely for us. It it tells us flat out, this is what you must do above all things. So for instance, you read in Colossians 3 and verse 14, but above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I've told you about many things, and now I'm going to tell you about one thing you must do above all, and that is put on love. Peter reflects the same mindset when he writes in 1 Peter 4.8, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. We see the same kind of priority in a passage like Matthew 6.33, But seek first, primarily, preeminently, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. You find it in our Lord's words concerning the great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love one's neighbor as yourself. On these two things, all of the law and the prophets hang. You see in a passage like Ecclesiastes 12, where we are told to fear God and keep his commandments. And Solomon says, for this is man's all. That is, this is what life is ultimately all about. And we have that in our passage again this morning. For many weeks now, we have been working our way through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, as we have said over and over again, was written to first century Jewish Christians who were, in some cases, contemplating returning To what we have called a Christless Judaism. That is a return to the types and the shadows of the old covenant. And unto the end that they would neither reject or ignore so great a salvation. The writer pleads. And he warns and he woos, he shows them that Jesus is better than anything that they would return to. And he warns them that in forsaking him, they will have to endure great and eternal consequences. He has one major objective, and that is to anchor their souls in an unshakable hope And to trust in the person and in the work of Jesus. And so to anchor their souls in that unshakable hope and to trust, the writer has preeminently expounded and applied the truth that Jesus is a great, a merciful, and a faithful high priest. This is the main argument of the book of Hebrews that Jesus is this great priest. And it's going to take us through uh, to uh, well into chapter 10. And while in some ways this priesthood of Jesus mirrors that, which the Jews had seen all of their lives, The Levites and the high priest who ministered in the temple, it reminds them that there was another order of priests spoken of in the scriptures, laid out in Genesis chapter 14, but then promised in Psalm 110 in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of a man named Melchizedek. Now, that truth was expounded and applied throughout the seventh chapter of the book. The chief application being that the priests of old and the sacrifices of old were not sufficient to deal with something as significant as our sins. But he, that is Jesus, because he is who he is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners, and because he has done what he has done, entered into the holiest place with his own blood, offering one sacrifice forever, because that's who he is and that's what he has done, he is able, in the words of verse 25 of chapter 7, to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Now that brings us to chapter 8, which will remind us again of the change of the priesthood, but also of the change of the covenants. He's going to introduce a new level of detail into his compelling argument about why they should look to Jesus and never stop looking to Jesus because of the coming of the new covenant built upon new and better promises. As we come to the text this morning, I want to deal with it under two headings. We want to consider, first of all, the preacher's burden expressed and then the preacher's burden expounded. And again, I'm using the language of the preacher because the book of Hebrews is a sermon, a preached sermon that was written down. It is a word of exhortation. So consider, first of all, the preacher's burden expressed. And it's found for us here preeminently in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Here we have his declaration that this is the main point. Now, that's interesting that this should arrive in chapter 8. Uh, Some seven chapters have gone by or by the way that I have expounded the book so far. I think this is somewhere around message 50. So 40 to 50 hours. And now he says, this is the main point. This is the main thing that I wanted you to get. And really he's saying not just the main point of chapter seven, but the main point of all that I have been saying, beginning with the introduction of the uh, God speaking to us in his son as well as obviously the matter of the priesthood and the high priesthood of Jesus in regard to all that you're going through as a congregation he is saying and remember that they were going through some very difficult and dark times amidst all of their struggles and all of their sufferings and everything that I have been preaching and teaching I have been saying these things in order that this truth might be grasped by you. So that if you get nothing else, make sure that you get this. Here's the main point of what I'm saying. It's the summation. It's the chief principle. It's, uh, it's taken from a, a, a word, a compound of the word head or uh, the arch thing that I want to say. And again, we are reminded in this again, that while all that he has said is important, there are things that he is saying that this is the main point. There are issues that are first tier. And we need to understand that. Because I think there is ever and always a temptation to be distracted by good things to the detriment of the greatest thing. Remember Paul says, talking about first tier things, Paul says concerning the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 3 and 4, for I delivered to you first of all, and he doesn't mean by way of chronology, that is, this is the first thing and then I taught you this and that. No, I taught you this preeminently. That which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the heart and soul of the gospel. And again, dear friends, the Bible contains many things and all of them matter. And all of them are things that God wants us to know. And to embrace, but to do so in due proportion and due weight. There are, in the words of our Savior, weightier matters of the law. And to neglect the weightier and to embrace the less weighty. Tithing of dill and mint and cumin. And forsaking love and mercy and justice... When you say to yourself, well, the tithing's in the Bible too, I know it is, but it's not equal to and it does not outweigh these other matters. And so the Bible again contains many things, all of which matter, all of which have their part in the proclamation of what the apostle calls the whole counsel of God. And it is the duty of gospel ministers over time, to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Paul could look at the Ephesian elders, and this is just after three years of ministry, so apparently within that time, you can give the whole counsel of God. And he said to them, I declare to you this day that I am free from the blood of all men. That is, no one on the last day will be able to lay their just damnation on my shoulders. They will not be able to say, my pastor never told me. My pastor never sought me. My pastor never confronted me. And he's taking that language from uh, the prophet Ezekiel who is told, set as a watchman and told to blow a trumpet and to give a warning even to those who had previously lived a righteous life that if they turn from that righteousness, their past acts of righteousness are not going to be remembered. If you do not warn the wicked man of the judgment to come, he'll die in his sin but his soul, his blood, I will require at your hand. And the answer to that, the reason Paul could say that he was innocent of that blood is because he did not shrink, he did not hesitate to declare the entirety of the counsel of God. Preach the wrath of God and the love of God, the justice of God and the mercy of God. He taught the law and he taught the gospel. He gave the whole counsel of God. But again, having said all of that, There is that which is supreme. And if you say to yourself, well, I want to make sure that I teach everything and therefore place everything, as it were, on an equal plane so that nothing is supreme, Nothing is ever great. The danger becomes that that which is supreme will be denigrated. And if that which is supreme is denigrated or it is covered or if it is overshadowed with the lesser, though that lesser be good and revealed, when that which is chief is subjugated to a lesser status, then we are in danger of losing the heart and soul of our faith. And I'm thankful for texts like these that remind me as a Christian man and as a preacher, as a pastor, that there are things that are supreme. There are things that are the main things. Because the temptations are all around to respond to everything in our society with such urgency to respond to the many needs of the hour, that truths like this can seem to be irrelevant. I mean, who cares that Jesus is a high priest when babies are dying in abortion mills, Jim? Who cares that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high when Hamas attacks Israel or drag queens are having storybook hour or uh, social a- activities uh, are, are, are such that would try to uh, destroy our homes and our children. Now's the t- now is no time to set your mind on things above. Now is not the time to focus our affections on Christ. Now is not the time to pray and sing hymns. We must meet the needs of the hour. And I was reminded, even in thinking, of, of all that has dominated the news in the last few days, of men like Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you don't know Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a great Welsh preacher of the last century. died, I think, in uh, 1980, 1981, somewhere Uh, In there, but he preached through the Second World War. And there are times in his preaching that he had to stop and pause to allow the building to stop shaking and the dust to settle from Nazi bombs being dropped on the city. And he would pause long enough. And now let me get back to telling you. Frightened, huddled Londoners being bombed who may go home to rubble that we have a great high priest in the heavens. That was his message. Week after week, text after text after text. And brethren, it is only in that way. Not ignoring everything. Not saying that. But we must make the main things the main things. And in that way, we meet the needs of the hour. And the question comes, how do we meet the needs of this hour and the next hour and all of the hours which will come upon us a week or a month or a year from now? Because the things that were so urgent two or three years ago are not quite so urgent now. And again, remember that the needs of these first century Jewish brethren were rather urgent. Homes were being lost. We're going to read about that later in the book. They had been excommunicated from the synagogues. Remember that taught in the Gospels if anybody believed in Jesus, they'd be put out of the synagogue. Family relations were strained. The gospel and Christ had brought a sword dividing mothers and daughters and fathers and sons, etc. War was coming. A few months after the preaching of this sermon and the circulation of this letter, Roman armies would invade Jerusalem and destroy the temple and blood would run through the streets. Prison was coming, famine was coming. And this man comes and he says to them, here's the main point. This is what you need to know. There is a high priest in the heavens ministering, praying, interceding for you the Savior who suffered for you and for whom you will suffer, the Savior who suffered for you, who gave his life for you, the Savior who cost you your family and your job and perhaps one day your liberty and your life is seated at the right hand of the throne, of the majesty in the heavens. And what is he saying to them? You see, when push comes to shove and you're suffering for something, you're going to ask yourself, is this worth it? So I, I, I'm going to use, a, I'm going to use a, a couple of baseball analogies today. There was a time baseball mattered far more to me than it does now. Somebody came to me, and they put a gun to my head and said, Jim, if you ever watch another baseball game, I'll kill you. Okay, I won't watch another baseball game. Yeah, I like it. But if they said you stop loving your wife, can no longer love your children, no longer love your grandchildren, our stakes are getting higher. But if they said to you, you must forsake Jesus. Well, again, is baseball worth my life? No. Is the Lord Jesus? Is he worth whatever hardship or suffering may come in association with him? Well, I need to know that he's worthy and that he's worth it. You see, no one is going to get to heaven and behold him and think, that's it? This is why I lost my job and my family and my life? For him? What a letdown. That is never going to happen. You see, all that you do as a Christian is ultimately rooted in the worthiness of Jesus. We were strongly exhorted this morning to fight our remaining sin. And we could give a host of reasons why you should fight these particular sins. But why ultimately are you in the fight? You see, that message was given to a Christian congregation with gospel motivations, With those who have a hope, a mutual hope rooted in a person, it wasn't given at the boys club at University of Louisville, where you might just get laughed out of the room if you tell them of a a biblical sexual ethic. Why would we embrace such things when we stand out so oddly and and, and in, in the minds of some so dangerously? Well, again, it's ultimately rooted in This one sitting at the right hand. The reason I hold what I hold to is because this one laid hold of me. Why do we evangelize? Is it just to avoid guilt and shame? Why do you love others and serve others when loving and serving them is difficult? And whatever the thing is, I said there are many things in the Bible and they all touch upon this. Why do you work hard? Why do you order your home a certain way? Those things are not inconsequential, but they're not the main thing, but they're tied to the main thing. Why do you instruct and discipline and love and protect your children the way that you do? It's because someone came down from heaven for me and loved me and lived for me and died for me and rose for me and ascended for me and has taken his place at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. You see, the answer for us as Christians is not that we live this way simply because it works. Because sometimes it sure doesn't look like it works which is why we are exhorted in the word of God not to lose heart while doing what is good. Why would you lose heart while doing what's good? Because it doesn't sometimes seem to bear much fruit. That's why we're told to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm gonna have more to say about that in a moment. But, but knowing, he says, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Who do you say that to? People who think their toil in the Lord is in vain. Because it feels like you're spinning your wheels. It feels like there's no fruit. Doesn't seem to be having any success. But again, you remind yourself, why are you there? It's not just because it's right and it's not just because it works. If he had not come and if he is not worthy, then all these other things which make up so much of our life will ultimately be in vain. That text, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Begins with a therefore my beloved brethren. Therefore my beloved brethren. In light of what, in, in light of what I have just expounded. Your labor is not in, in vain. Now what did he expound? Most of us should know this. What's 1 Corinthians 15 about? It's about the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus. It's about the reality that He will come and transform us. And if that's not true, see again, He's drawing the connection. Because that is true, nothing you do in association with Him is in vain. If the resurrection and the coronation, And the exaltation of Jesus is a fraud. If all of that's fake, if he was a deceiver, if he's still in the tomb, then all bets are off. But if God has fulfilled his ancient prophecies... And if indeed Jesus has become a faithful and merciful high priest, whoever lives to make intercession for you and for me, and if he is able to save me to the uttermost that is completely and forever, then I must bind my wandering heart to him. You see, if all that's true, if the main point is true, and again, go back to the original audience, then why would I go back to the priests who need to offer sacrifices for themselves and who have to do it day by day and others year by year? The writer is going to say, what are you going to forsake and what are you going to go back to? For the Jew living at that time, you could say to them, listen, what kind of priest do you have? Remember, we asked the question last week, do you Do you need a priest and why do you need a priest? But if you said to them, what kind of priest do you have? And the answer would be something like this. One appointed by the law, a sinner like me, with an insufficient sacrifice who is frail and temporary and who will be replaced. And if they were to turn around and say to you, and what about you? Well, let me tell you about My high priest. One appointed by covenant. Sworn by promise. A king of righteousness and a king of priests. One who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. Who offered a perfect sacrifice once for all upon the cross. And who rules at the right hand of the majesty on high with the power of an endless life. Who went into the heavens see somebody could say my high priest went behind the veil of the curtain in the temple and my high priest went into the presence of god and offered his sacrifices and there he sits at the by the side of the majesty on high so having expressed that burden, he now is going to expound it. So consider the preacher's burden expounded. Again, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister. And this is the word from which we get our word uh, liturgy. One has said our, our worship leader. Uh, A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, this may seem rather complex But I think what I want to do today really is just to simplify this for us because it's really a rather simple argument that he is making and this will set up and and act as the, the ramp into our getting into this wonderful truth and revelation about the new covenant that Jesus came to make and how it's better than the old covenant. So we have seen that Jesus is a better priest with a far better sacrifice and that he comes from a superior order of priesthood, right? We've been looking at that over these uh, weeks and even months. The theme of superiority is now reinforced by the superiority of the sanctuary in which he ministers and, again, touching on this, the covenant under which he ministers. So why is Jesus a better? Well, look at where they work. And look at the covenant under which they operate. Now we're going to focus on the first of these today. Now remember that the purpose of this further revelation is to produce in your heart trust and faith. So whatever else we get into this, don't miss this. This has a point. It's to tether your heart to Christ. It's to produce trust and faith so that your heart would be bound to him now and forever. And this is why you can set your hearts and your minds on him. This is, again, why he is worthy. This is why he is set forth as the chief treasure, the pearl of great price. This is why we can declare that he has the name that is above every name, that he's better than anything and anyone. This is why, again, we want to make him known. This is why we want our children and grandchildren to come to know him. And this is what we pray about, isn't it? We don't just pray, hey, you know, so uh, 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 boys and girls are going to be born here in the days ahead. And when we pray for the boys and girls, we don't just pray that they'll be successful and have good degrees and make lots of money and and have good homes and, and live in peace. You know what we pray for? You know what we want for you? We want you to know this Jesus. And we can say of some of you, listen, I don't care whatever else you accomplish. Find to have dreams and have things you want to do and that you want to be and and all of the rest. And think about the future. Again, I'm thinking a lot about the future. When you become a grandpa, you think a lot about the future. And what the world's going to be 80 and 90 years from now. And the kind of world I want my children and grandchildren to grow up in. These things matter to us. But there are things that matter the most. And if they should gain the whole world and lose their own soul, what would it profit him? You see, it's because these things are true about Jesus. This is why we urge and this is why we pray and this is why we plead. We don't just want you to be safe and secure and happy and not do things that will destroy your reputation and your marriage and your humanity and your sexuality. And we, we don't just want to keep you safe so that you're not hurt and you're not abused. I want all of those things for my kids and for my grandkids. But if they should end up one day in some gulag or concentration camp, but clinging to Christ. Then I can live with that and die with that. Because this is what matters most. There is nobody like him. You know, I'm going to say, just going to say this by way of a side. Isn't it, isn't it sad in a way, isn't it, you know, in, the, in the human heart, that we should need one truth after another, after another continually to bind our wandering hearts to him? Wouldn't you just think that if we just said one time, look, Jesus is worthy. And I don't ever have to say it again. You know, So I'm going to look out every week. Okay, everybody heard me say that, right? So that's it, right? Everybody's got it. And no temptation you face this week or next month is going is to try to pry you away from that. Because you got it, right? That's a solid foundation. We need this over and over again. These things are revealed by the Spirit, not just here, but in one part and other in the word of God to produce faith and lasting faith is to make us look to him and love him. Whenever you're reading this book and you feel like you've kind of lost the narrative in light of the minutia, oh, what exactly is this and what about that? Just lift your head up and remember where you're going. It's all, it's all to point you to the supremacy of Christ. So where did the earthly priests, the Levitical priests, and the high priests, where did they minister? Well, they ministered in an earthly sanctuary. At first, a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle, remember, was kind of like a tent-like structure. And you read about it, and it's talking about curtains and rods and curtain rings And all of the rest. And and we are only wading into waters right now that are very deep. But that tabernacle was expressly laid out to Moses on the mountain by God. He didn't just say, I want you to build a place. So we're coming on our, let's see, 1996 to 2023. So what, 27 years that we have been in this building. So it was in October of 1996. I think it was the last Sunday in October of 1996. It was whatever the Sunday after the World Series was. I remembered that. (laughs) Now, when we built this place, Some of us had a hand in thinking through how we wanted this place to look. And if you want to see what it used to look like, there's some pictures in the library that you can, there's a photo album in there and you can see the construction of this place. There was no pattern that we, it was just, well, you know, how, how, how big and how wide and how long and how high is the, you know, where's the pulpit going to go? And you know, you know who decided that a a, a group of us along with, you know, an architect and artist and other things and put together what this was going to look like. And that was fine. When God said to Moses, there's going to be a place you're going to take with you. And it's going to be the place where you're going to worship. I'm going to tell you every ring, every wall, every piece of furniture, This is what you're going to make it out of. This is how big it's going to be. This is where it's going to be placed and this is the purpose that it's going to serve. And You can read about this in the book of Exodus. When you read about the pattern laid out in Exodus for the construction of the tabernacle and how precise it was and what every implement was to be that's the altar of incense. That's the bronze laver. That's the, the table of showbread. That's uh, the, the lamp in, in, inside, every bowl, every lamp, every table, every offering. Now, I don't know about you, uh, and, and this actually has I've felt somewhat of a rebuke. I, I have to say that those are rarely my favorite Bible reading times. To go through and read through something that was made thousands of years ago, but all of it was serving a purpose. And it was a shadow, we read, and a copy of heavenly things. Now, does that mean there's an altar of incense in heaven and a a bronze laver and a a table with bread laid out on it in heaven? No, but it is corresponding to, and it's using it not in the Platonic sense. Some of you are familiar with Plato and the Plato kids, not (laughs) Plato. Plato and his philosophy of shadows and realities and uh, shadows on the walls of caves and and all of this. Not using it in, in that Greek Platonic sense, but in the biblical sense. I want you to have things that correspond to realities of my holiness and your need of forgiveness And of the need of an intercessor and the need of sacrifice and the need of intercession. And these priests, these Levites, that some of you, this is what you'll go back to. not, Not to the tabernacle, but to the temple. Now, again, remember, the temple was only going to be there, I say, for a few more months. Maybe a couple of years. But that's ultimately, you know, in the span of time, it's but a few days. But what they were going to go back to, if you forsake Jesus as a Jew, now you forsake Jesus as a Gentile, no telling what you're going to go back to. But for the Jew, what they'd go back to is a copy and a shadow. They minister not in the real and the true, but in the type. But Jesus as a high priest ministers in the heavenly in the true not in the earthly representation of the presence of God but the true presence of God now that type and shadow of the presence of God behind the veil in the holy of holies was such that it could kill someone that the, the if i can say the sight of the shadow And the power of the type, how much greater the heavenly. Now, the temple at that time was quite a magnificent complex. And I I, I sent out a video this morning. And for those of you with internet access, you you can click on it. And it's going to show you a visible, yeah, a um, a visual, invisible, a visual representation of the tabernacle and of the temple. And it's awesome. And I want you to think about in light of the preaching Pastor Derek has done, and when you see that temple complex and when Jesus said not one stone will be left on another, it's not just like looking at some little house somewhere. It it was a magnificent piece of architecture. It would have inspired awe if you saw it. And the priests and the rituals there would have been such an impressive part of Jewish life, and the temptation again of some would be to say, "Well, Jesus would have been forbidden to go into that place and offer sacrifice because he was not a Levite and the writer saying, "So what That's right. and I struggle to find a proper analogy, but Imagine if all you ever knew of baseball was T-ball. Now you know what T-ball is. T-ball is what little kids play, and it starts off. There's a, a a little device, a tee, like a golf tee, but it's you know a couple of feet high. You put the baseball on top of it, and a kid tries to hit that. It's not pitch, and it's not moving. And they struggle to hit it. And then eventually if they hit it or hit the tee and the ball falls off and rolls down, and then the other players all swarm around it in some kind of hilarity. But let's say in your mind that was baseball. My kid's a baseball player. My kid's the best T ball player. And you thought all your life this is it. And then one day someone takes you out of that fantasy realm in which you live. And they take you into one of these grand stadiums on a sunny summer afternoon. And you walk through the darkened corridor and step out. And there's 50,000 cheering fans and the beautiful green grass and the full size and men playing the game. And you think, I thought that? I I, I thought T-ball was something? See, the work of the earthly priest was the result of the law given by Moses. A template, a pattern to be followed precisely about the tabernacle, much of which was then carried on uh, into the temple, which had its fixed walls and stone and, and uh Cedar and, and all of the rest. This tabernacle where the Jews would worship God, where the priests would offer sacrifices, and where for a time the Ark of the Covenant with what was called the mercy seat rested behind a veil. And again, all of that pointed to something, something grander and more real and more substantial. The law had determined these things, what was there and and how offering was to be made and who would offer it and when they'd offer it and how they'd offer it. It was a pattern we read. He's quoting here from Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40. See that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown to Moses on the mountain. And they did exactly as they had been told. But again, what they made and what they carried around for years and then what they built and then was destroyed and then rebuilt and then refurbished again, what was that place? What was it? It was a shadow, an image. And there were priests appointed there by the law, men of a certain family And of these priests, again, these frail men, these limited men, etc., the Lord Jesus could not and would not serve. He would not have been able to go into the earthly temple or the er er earthly tabernacle and walk behind the veil. The law had forbidden such, but the promise had spoken of something better. You see, he was, because of who he was, able to go into the true. You know, the Ark of the Covenant was lost, But the veil remained, and there behind it was no longer that means appointed of old. So when the high priest went behind the veil, that mercy seat that had been commanded and constructed was no longer there. But when Jesus went, as it were, behind the veil, and he went into the fullness of the glory of the presence And the God of heaven then took his finger and he cut the veil that was in the temple in two from the top to the bottom. So again, so that while Jesus was forbidden by the law to pour blood in the earthly shadow, he could bring his blood, as it were, into the perfect, into the real, into the heavenly, of which the earthly, again, was only a type and a shadow. Now, this is intended to do two things. To help Jews with what might be perplexing and confusing in light of the argument given. Jesus is a high priest. Well, but Jesus isn't a Levite. And the law would have forbidden him from being a priest. What's a stupid argument? No, 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 no. You need to understand that this earthly is a picture of something heavenly. And these sacrifices and these priests point to something better and more eternal. So, this explains why this is possible, why Jesus can be a high priest, why it's not a breaking of the law, why his serving as high priest is not scandalous or forbidden. It answers a theological question. But again, it does something else. Because not only is this not forbidden, Not only is it lawful according to the promise made, it's so much better. And so do not bewail that he was not a Levite. Do not bewail that he did not offer his sacrifice in the earthly temple. That temple was a picture of the heavenly where no Levite could or would go. They could scarcely go behind the veil. One could go once a year, and that with bells on, with a rope tied around his waist, lest the glory of God consume him and he die. But Jesus goes there boldly and allows us to enter now into that presence with boldness and with confidence. Jesus went where no Levite could or would go, where a greater high priest after the order of Melchizedek went once for all and sat down. Now again, the writer says, and this is my main point. I'm going to come back to this. And while the Bible touches on many things, important and crucial things, things that I'm committed to preach on, and to teach on in one form or another, and your other elders are too. Things pertaining to life and godliness, how to love justice and to show mercy, and how to walk humbly with your God. And yes, we're going to try to open up in one form or another how to have a better marriage and better homes and raise our kids and how to live in a morally corrupt society as lights shining in the midst of darkness. Those things are not the main thing. Do not miss in the pursuit of some good things the main things. To be philosophically and morally superior is not an end in and of itself. We cannot bind our wandering hearts to such things. They must be bound to him. And that is why it is him that we proclaim. And it's him that we offer. And why we don't come Lord's day by Lord's day with a promise of, of peace and prosperity and health and wealth the way sadly some ministries do. We get to a point in our sermon and it seems no matter what we're talking about that we're able to root that truth back into the person and work of Christ and offer him afresh to those who do not know him as well as again bind our wandering hearts to him because we need it so. And we need it week by week and month by month and year by year. This is the main thing. We have a high priest who's passed through the heavens and the whole of your hope of eternal happiness rests on that. And the whole of your hope that there is a power to live the way God has called you to is rooted in the reality that the spirit would not come until he was glorified. And he was glorified and that spirit did come. In your pursuit of the good, don't forget the main. In the pursuit of lesser things, do not, remember, do not forsake that and that one who is supremely given. We offer him not just a better life. Yeah, I believe, I, will, will it be a better life? Yes, yes. Will it be an easier life? Maybe not. Will it be a more prosperous life? Maybe not. But if your life is hidden in Christ, then you will have the best that God has to offer. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's blessing on these things. Father in heaven, thank you for that one who came, that one who lived and who died we thank you heavenly father for the hope that we have in him because he is who he is and he has done what he has done father do again we pray by the spirit by the knowledge of the truth bind us afresh to him and lord draw some we pray this day particularly lord among our precious young people convince them of their sin then lead to jesus blood we pray In his matchless name, amen.